Chapter Three, Part Two of the American Language. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The American Language by H. L. Mencken, Chapter Three, The Period of Growth, Part Two, The Language in the Making. All this jingoistic bombast, however, was directed toward defending not so much the national vernacular as the national beautiful letters. True enough, an English attack upon a definite American locution always brought out certain critical Minutemen, but in the main they were anything but hospitable to the racy neologisms that kept crowding up from below, and most of them were eager to be accepted as masters of orthodox English and very sensitive to the charge that their writing was bestrewn with Americanisms. A glance through the native criticism of the time will show how ardently even the most uncompromising patriots imitated the Johnsonian jargon then fashionable in England. Fowler and Griswold followed pantingly in the footsteps of Macaulay. Their prose is extraordinarily ornate and self-conscious, and one searches it in vain for any concession to colloquialism. Poe, the master of them all, achieved a style so elephantine that many an English leader-writer must have studied it with envy. A few bolder spirits, as we have seen, spoke out for the national freedom in language as well as in letters, among them Channing. But in the main the Brahmins of the time were conservatives in that department, and it is difficult to imagine Emerson or Irving or Bryant sanctioning the innovations later adopted so easily by Howells. Lowell and Walt Whitman, in fact, were the first men of letters, properly so called, to give specific assent to the great changes that were firmly fixed in the national speech during the half-century between the War of 1812 and the Civil War. Lowell did so in his preface to the second series of the Bigelow Papers. Whitman made his declaration in an American primer. In discussing his own poetry, he said, it is an attempt to give the spirit, the body, and the man, new words, new potentialities of speech, an American, a cosmopolitan, for the best of America is the best cosmopolitanism, range of self-expression. And then, the Americans are going to be the most fluent and melodious voiced people in the world and the most perfect users of words. The new times, the new people, the new vistas need a new tongue according. Yes, and what is more, they will have such a new tongue. To which, as everyone knows, Whitman himself forthwith contributed many daring, and still undigested novelties, e.g., Camarado, Romanza, Adamic, and These States. Meanwhile, in strong contrast to the lingering conservatism above, there was a wild and lawless development of the language below, and in the end it forced itself into recognition and profited by the literary declaration of independence of its very opponents. The use at Norma Locindi says W. R. Moorfield, the English philologist, do not depend upon scholars. Particularly in a country where scholarship is still new and wholly cloistered, and the overwhelming majority of the people are engaged upon novel and highly exhilarating tasks, far away from schools and with a gigantic cockiness in their hearts. The remnants of the Puritan civilization had been wiped out by the rise of the proletariat under Jackson, and whatever was fine and sensitive in it had died with it. What remained of an urbane habit of mind and utterance began to be confined to the narrowing feudal areas of the South, and to the still narrower refuge of the Boston Brahmins, now for the first time a definitely recognized caste of intelligentsia, 
self-charged with carrying the torch of culture through a new dark age. The typical American, in Paulding's satirical phrase, became a bundling, gouging, impious fellow without either morals, literature, religion, or refinement. Next to the savage struggle for land and dollars, party politics was the chief concern of the people, and with the disappearance of the old leaders and the entrance of pushing upstarts from the backwoods, political controversy sank to an incredibly low level. Bartlett, in the introduction to the second edition of his glossary, describes the effect upon the language. First the enfranchised mob, whether in the city wards or along the western rivers, invented fantastic slang words and turns of phrase. Then they were seized upon by stump speakers at political meetings. Then they were heard in Congress. Then they got into the newspapers. And finally they came into more or less good usage. Much contemporary evidence is to the same effect. Fowler, in listing low expressions in 1850, described them as chiefly political. The vernacular tongue of the country, said Daniel Webster, has become greatly vitiated, depraved, and corrupted by the style of the congressional debates. Thornton, in the appendix to his glossary, gives some astounding specimens of congressional oratory between the twenties and the sixties, and many more will reward the explorer who braves the files of the congressional globe. This flood of racy and unprecedented words and phrases beat upon and finally penetrated the retreat of the literati. But the purity of speech cultivated there had little compensatory influence upon the Vulgate. The newspaper was now enthroned, and bellettes were cultivated almost in private, and as a mystery. It is probable indeed that Uncle Tom's Cabin and Ten Nights in a Barroom, both published in the early fifties, were the first contemporary native books after Cooper's Day, that the American people is a people ever read. Nor did the pulpit, now fast falling from its old high estate, lift a corrective voice. On the contrary, it joined the crowd, and Bartlett denounces it specifically for its bad example, and cites among its crimes against the language such inventions as to doxologize and to funeralize. To these novelties, apparently without any thought of their uncouthness, Fowler adds to missionate and consociational. As I say, the pressure from below broke down the defenses of the purists and literally forced a new national idiom upon them. Pen in hand, they might still achieve laborious imitations of Johnson and Macaulay, but their mouths began to betray them. When it comes to talking, wrote Charles Astor Bristed for Englishmen in 1855, the most refined and best educated American, who has habitually resided in his own country, the very man who would write on some serious topic, volumes in which no peculiarity could be detected, will in half a dozen sentences use at least as many words that cannot fail to strike the inexperienced Englishman who hears them for the first time. Bristed gave a specimen of the American of that time, calculated to flabbergast his inexperienced Englishman. You will find it in the volume of Cambridge Essays, already cited. His aim was to explain and defend Americanisms, and so shut off the storm of English reviling, and he succeeded in producing one of the most thoughtful and persuasive essays on the subject ever written. But his purpose failed, and the attack kept up, and eight years afterward the very Reverend Henry Alford, D.D., Dean of Canterbury, led a famous assault. Look at those phrases, he said, which so amuse us in their speech and books at their reckless exaggeration and contempt for congruity. 
and then compare the character and history of the nation, its blunted sense of moral obligation and duty to man, its open disregard of conventional right where aggrandizement is to be obtained, and I may now say its reckless and fruitless maintenance of the most cruel and unprincipled war in the history of the world. In his American edition of 1866, Dr. Alford withdrew this reference to the Civil War, and somewhat ameliorated his indignation otherwise, but he clung to the main counts in his indictment, and most Englishmen, I dare say, still give them a certain support. The American is no longer a vain, egotistical, insolent, rodomontade sort of fellow. America is no longer the brigand confederation of the foreign quarterly, or the loathsome creature, maimed and lame, full of sores and ulcers of Dickens. But the Americanism is yet regarded with a bilious eye, and pounced upon viciously when found. Even the friendliest English critics seem to be daunted by the gargantuan copiousness of American inventions and speech. Their position, perhaps, was well stated by Captain Basil Hall, author of the celebrated Travels in North America in 1827. When he argued that surely such innovations are to be deprecated, an American asked him this question. If a word becomes universally current in America, why should it not take its station in the language? Because, replied Hall in all seriousness, there are words enough in our language already. End of chapter 3, part 2. Recording by Philip Gould.